Well, it's really good to be back with you guys. Uh, I greatly miss walking through God's Word with you each Sunday. So, And uh, thank you all uh, to each of you who have cared for Kelsey and me so much, uh, both during the pregnancy and, and during uh, Titus's uh, actual delivery and afterward. It's just made us even more grateful that we're part of the, the church body that we are. So thank you. And I'll tell you, you know, being pretty sleep-deprived just as a result of having an infant in your home who doesn't know the difference between night and day. It's made a lot easier when food just like magically arrives on your doorstep. So I know a lot of you have prepared and sent food to us. Thank you so much for that. And a lot of you have cared for us in other ways. So thank you. Um, so today we are starting a new series in First and Second Samuel, Samuel looking at the gospel in the life of David. And here's why we're doing this. So here at Doxology, we talk about Jesus a lot. And we should. He's the reason why we exist. He's the reason why we worship. But over the, since we you know, started as a church, doxology, but even before that, when we were part of Portico, a lot of the texts we looked at were either in the gospel accounts themselves or in the New Testament passages, which look at life after Jesus. So we're going to take a fair amount of time to look at First uh, and Second Samuel, which is in the Old Testament. And here's one of the reasons, there's a number of reasons, but here's just one why that matters. So Jesus Christ, he didn't just show up out of nowhere on the stage of human history. He didn't just like come in, do some stuff, and then leave. But there was a lot of context for why he did what he did. And so when you read the Old Testament, what it does is, especially as you see that all the Old Testament foreshadows everything uh, that Jesus is going to do and everything that he is. So when Jesus comes on the scene, it makes a lot more sense. So first, why he does what he does. But then number two, it fills out your life with Jesus as well when you understand everything that comes up, up into the life of Jesus. And I know for a lot of people, the Old Testament can be pretty obscure. Sometimes it's either confusing or it just reads like a lot of Aesop's fables. But what we're going to see here as we look at the life of David, how uh, he is a type of king that points to the ultimate and true king that we need, Jesus. And that, that'll change a lot. And so I I'm pray that this will be a fruitful time for us over the next few months as we, as we walk through that. And as you heard in the text this morning, the life of David, it didn't begin with David. But uh, what's so amazing about the life of David is it began with a prayer, uh, a prayer of a remarkable woman named Hannah. Uh, so Hannah is culturally oppressed. She's, she's weeping. And what you see in this passage is Hannah starts in the beginning shattered and broken, but then by the end of the, the passage, she's filled with joy and she's free. And in large part, it's because of the prayer that she put before God. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight is um, what happens here with Hannah. We'll look at it under two headings. So first, we'll look at Hannah's tears. And then second, we'll look at Hannah's prayer, the prayer that she gives in response to her tears. So first, uh, Hannah's tears, essentially, like, why is she weeping? And then number two, uh, Hannah's Hannah's prayer. So verse number one, Hannah's tears. So the text starts off giving us three main characters. So there's Elkanah, and then he has two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. And context for this matters. So where are we in terms of history here? So over here, you could say we have Abraham, where God says, Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation. God does that. So fast forward, then Abraham becomes, you know, millions of Israelites. They're enslaved in Egypt. God deliberates them from Egypt. He pulls them out of Egypt. Then he, then he brings them to the promised land, Canaan. And when he leads them into, into the promised land, what God tells his people is he says, if you obey my law, if you love me with all your heart and soul, and you love one another as I've shown you how to do, then you will prosper, and I'll, and I'll continue to make you a new great nation. Well, long story short is Israel failed spectacularly at that. 
and they, they didn't follow God, they didn't love one another, and what they did is they started following after the gods, uh, the local gods of the other people that they were living near. I mean, some of these gods would command, you know, atrocious acts such as child sacrifice, and the Israelites got tangled up in this. And so what happens is, is God gives Israel up, essentially says, okay, this is what you want, I'm going to give it to you. So by the time you come to 1 Samuel, where we see here, Israel is essentially existing as a number of disparate tribes. They don't have one leader who's leading them in a unified manner, and there's a lot of suffering and there's a lot of darkness. And so when you see Hannah here, so Hannah's barren, she can't have children, and she's weeping. So first, this is historical fact, but it's also a, a symbol. When we look at Hannah, we're supposed to see the, the overall state of Israel. So like Hannah's weeping points to the fact that Israel as a whole was in darkness and despair. But then also, Hannah's barrenness also points to the, the spiritual bankruptcy of the people of God, Israel. But then by Hannah coming before God, she really changes history. Okay, so that's, that's the context of where we're at, okay, just to kind of um, sta- stabilize us, if you will, show us where we are. And so what we're going to ask is, okay, so why is she so sad? The text goes out of its way to say, Hannah weeps bitterly. Over and over it says that. And the first reason why she's sad, and this may not be very obvious, but the first reason why she's sad is because she's in a polygamous relationship. And I bring this up, one, because the text is showing it, but second, something that people have asked me or told me a number of times and something that I read a lot, I like to spend a lot of time on forums and just see what people are saying, is often one of the common things you'll, you'll hear people say with regards to objecting to Christianity is they'll say something like, you know, I don't really understand why you, and Christ, why, why you Christians pick and choose things from the Bible. You know, so for example, the Bible condones polygamy. Like you see polygamous relationships all throughout the scriptures. So Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, like all these guys are in polygamous relationships. But today you say, no, no, you know, it's, it's wrong to have multiple wives. And so Robert Alter, he's a, he's a, he's a world-renowned um, Hebrew translator and scholar. He's not a Christian. He's a secular Jewish man. But a lot of the works that he's done on First and Second Samuel have been very helpful to me as I've been studying this. And one of the things Robert Alter says is, <laughs> he says, if you read the scriptures and you come to the conclusion that the Bible condones polygamy, then you don't know how to read, is what he says. He says that, that, that exhibits a very careless reading of the text. Because, yes, while you see a number of people in polygamous relationships, nowhere do you see God saying this is a good thing to do. And every single time, the Bible goes out of its way to show that these people who are in polygamous relationships are absolutely miserable. They're absolutely miserable. So you, you can in no way just look at this and say, oh, okay, the, the, you know, the Bible condones polygamy. And getting back to why is Hannah so sad, I mean, of course she's heartbroken. So think about how twisted this relationship is with so Elkanah the husband and then his two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. So first, Peninnah is able to have lots of children. Hannah can't have any children. And the text says that Peninnah provoked Hannah. So it's not just that Hannah, you know, has the heartbreak of not being able to have children, but her husband's other wife is regularly saying things to her, you know, things along the lines of like, okay, you know, Hannah, I got all my kids. Where are your kids? Oh, oh, wait. Oh, because you can't have kids. Oh, I'm sorry. It's horrible. Or, you know, imagine situations where, you know, Panina is in the bedroom with Elkanah, and then Elkanah comes out, and he's like, hey, Hannah, what's for dinner? Okay, like, this, this is the type of situation that, that Hannah's in. But it's not even horrible for Hannah. It's bad for Panina as well. 
because the text says that even though Peninnah can produce children, Elkanah loved Hannah more. It says when they would go to sacrifice, he would give Hannah a double portion. So that's a sign of uh, intense affection and adoration. And so if you're Peninnah, you're basically what? You're the baby factory. But meanwhile, your husband's off, you know, whining and dining your, his other wife. Okay, so this is, this is the context that we're looking at. So first, Hannah's sad because of this ridiculous marriage that she's in. But the second reason why she's sad is, we've mentioned a number of times, it's because she's barren. She can't have any children. But for Hannah, this would be a lot harder than it would be for you and me. So I think we read this and we go, okay, yeah, I guess, you know, I can understand if a, a woman or, you know, or a man really wants children, then they would be heartbroken. You know, if you have an intense desire, you know, some of you know this, uh, to want to have and raise kids and you can't have them, I mean, that's one of the, the hardest things to go through. But for Hannah, it was even worse because, so in a Western context, Usually how people view having kids is mainly through the lens of emotional fulfillment. Okay, I'm just going to be happier, you know, if I can have a mini-me and I can raise them and we're going to have fun together as a family. Now, that's not a bad thing. But for Hannah, it was far more complex than that because in Hannah's day, essentially every good in that traditional culture was multiplied if you could have children. So if you're a woman in the context that Hannah lived in, so first of all, essentially if you couldn't bear kids, then you were a nobody. Because first, if you couldn't have children, it would be hard for your family to survive. This, it was an agrarian society, so the more ki- kids you have, right, the more helpers you have to tend to the sheep and the goats, and the more kids you have to you know, help tend the crops and, and so forth. So it'd be hard for your family to survive. But there's also a, a national interest there as well. Because in, in Hannah's day, the more fertile the women were in a given nation, the more likely that nation was going to be to win battles. Because... Battles weren't won so much through technology and strategy like they are often today. But back then when, you know, a lot of people had very similar technology, it was essentially who has more people. And so if you're a woman in a nation, then you're helping contribute to the military success of your nation and your nation's survival if you can have children. So, you know, if you can have kids, you're, you're a cultural hero. If you can't have kids, you're a nobody. And guys... Like, there, there are two ways to feel bad about yourself. Okay, so, so the first way that you can feel bad about yourself is because, so, because of something you've done, okay, actions you've done, so you feel bad because you did something wrong. But there's a second way to feel bad about yourself, and it's far worse, and it has less to do with actions, but more to do with essence. Okay, so you feel bad about yourself not because you did something, but because you exist in the wrong way. And that's what Hannah's feeling. Like she's being told from every single voice, externally and internally, that Hannah, there's something impure in the fact of your being is what she's being led to believe. And that's why Hannah's sad. And so just a a reflection here before we move on to the prayer that she gives. So, one thing that I noticed uh, as I was reading through this is, do you see when uh, Hannah's distress was, was elevated? A lot of times it was when she went to church. It says in verse 7 that when she would go to the house of, house of the Lord, that's when Peninnah would provoke her. 
And what's so sad is that the church should be the place where the most hope can be experienced, right? But for Hannah, and quite frankly, for a lot of people, maybe some of you, church can sometimes be the last place you want to go. I mean, sometimes church where it should be the place where you can find the most joy, where you might feel the most alone because of some type of trial you're facing. There's a, lot, there's a lot of complicated reasons why people can have a hard time going to church. And so just two applications here that are essentially kind of two sides of the same coin with this. So first is, notice that Hannah, even though she was in despair, she still went. And it's because she went to the house of the Lord and prayed the prayer that she did that then God gave her Samuel, who called David, who led to Jesus. Okay, it's because Hannah still went to God's house when she didn't feel like it, that God met her in the way he did, that God sustained her in the way he did. And so an encouragement to you all is sometimes it can be very easy to not go to church or not go to community group or not go to discipleship group because of a mood. It's like, well, I just don't feel like going, so I'm not going to go. Okay, but it's, it's through going, okay, is how God meets you and God changes you. So learn from Hannah in that regard. But the second thing is, is, See how Peninnah was the one uh, provoking Hannah, right? Peninnah was one of the main reasons why it was so hard for Hannah to go to church. And so as we gather as a body of people, this gathering should be the place where we experience great joy, but also we should walk through all the range of emotions that God gives us. And so what this plays out practically is the church is interesting and messy because so we're a family, right? So whether we're 40 or 400, we're a family, like, there's no such thing as Jesus calling you uh, to know him, and then you just live life on your own. He calls you into a family. But when you're in a family, that means you should be in each other's business. Okay, so you should be in other people's business, and you should give other people license to be in, in your business. But what we have to be so careful of doing is, yes, you should be in other people's business, and you should be in my business. But be so careful of how you go about being in other people's business. And I think for, for most of us, it's not going to happen so much through like deliberate provocation like we see Panina doing, but often it just happens through careless words and through assuming things about somebody you're talking to that probably aren't true. It's like when you're talking with somebody, even if you feel like you know them reasonably well, just be so careful of assuming that because you have a good family, they have a great family. Or... If they're single, assuming that they really want to be married. Or if they're married, assuming that they have a great marriage and that they're really happy just because they're married. Just be so careful of assumptions. And so like one of the ways this plays out is, so this happened a couple years ago. And so this whole text actually has been really hitting home this week because Kelsey and I, we were infertile for eight years. And so a couple years ago when we're in the midst of, you know, Doctors telling us, you know, there's not a snowball's chance in the, that, you can't, that you can have kids. Um, I, I went to go visit a church uh, a couple years ago, and I ran into someone who Kelsey and I were friends with. They used to live up here. And so I ran into this uh, young lady, and since they moved, her and her husband had had a lot of kids. And when I ran into her, uh, you know, so she's got all her kids there, and she's talking to me. And then she looks at me, and she goes, so why don't you and Kelsey have any kids yet? You're like, when are you just going to start having them? And she didn't, she didn't mean it maliciously, but the effect was still the same. And 
I don't say this to, to, to put her down. I've been careless with my words so many times. Um, it's been one of the hardest things about public ministry as well, just having to be so careful with words. But, you know, she meant it as just a, a happy comment, but it created a lot of pain. And so the, the point there is just be very careful about the assumptions you have about other people, okay? And just, just not making assumptions, being very careful with your words. All right, so that's Hannah's tears. We see why she's sad. So next let's look at Hannah's prayer, uh, what she does. So what's fascinating here is, so we see Peninnah provoking her, and then what does her husband Elkanah do in verse 8? It says, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So you read this and you go, oh, typical man. You know, like his, his wife is crying, and instead of trying to console her or understand her, her tears, he just jumps right to trying to fix it. He's just like putting solutions in her face, and it's very self-centered. It's like, well, come on, you know, like am I not, am I not good enough, you know, to, to make you happy? And, but here's what's going on is, it's, Interesting how the text goes, verse 7, 8, 9. What happens is, in verse 7, you have the voice of Peninnah. And you could say that Peninnah's voice represents the voice of traditional culture, which says, which is, you know, makes an idol out of the family. And so in traditional culture, if you're a woman and you can't have kids, you're nobody, is basically what you're told. But then Elkanah, he comes along, and his voice, you could say, represents our modern culture. Because what does he tell Hannah? He says, Hannah, okay, you can't have children, but put your hopes in romantic fulfillment. And one of the most pervasive and powerful lies of our modern context is that in order to live a fully human and happy life, you have to have a romantic partner and you have to be able to express yourself sexually when you want and with who you want it. And I know this isn't a popular topic, but so, so we look at Peninnah and we say, oh, that's so oppressive. You know, her telling Hannah, if you don't have children, you're nobody. But what's equally oppressive, even though we don't often see it, is telling people, if you're not sleeping with the people you want to sleep with, or just not even that, if you're not in a romantic relationship, then you can't be happy. You can't live a fully human life. And why it's oppressive is because it's in so many people, including Christians, on this merry-go-round of insanity like chasing romantic fulfillment when it never satisfies because only Jesus Christ can. Now I know there are, there are a lot of Christians in, in marriages who are very bitter because they married their partner expecting them to fill their soul. And surprise, no human can do what only Jesus can do. Okay, so the lie that you can find complete fulfillment in romance is just as oppressive and will lead you just as far away from Jesus Christ as telling somebody, oh, you can't have kids, you're nobody. Is romance a good thing? Absolutely. But just remember its place. Jesus always has to be, Jesus Christ always has to be first. And so that's what we see Hannah do. Verse 7, she gets the voice of Peninnah. Verse 8, she gets the voice of Elkanah. And then verse 9, what does it say? It says, Hannah rose... Okay, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose, and then she goes to the temple of the Lord. And what Robert Alter says that Hebrew scholar had mentioned earlier, what he says is it's, it's narratively significant that Hannah doesn't answer Peninnah, she doesn't answer Elkanah, but she goes to God. 
right? She, she doesn't go to either voice that's saying, find your identity in this, find your fulfillment in this. What she does is she goes straight to the Lord. And so what she does, and here we have so much to learn from Hannah and how she prays. So she's real. I mean, she, she says that she's in affliction. She pours that out to God. She asks for what she wants. Okay, she says, God, I really want a son. Will you please give me a son? And then she says, and if you give me a son, <clears throat> I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So when you first read this prayer, what, lo- what it looks like is, it looks like she's bartering with God. God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Okay, but we know she's not bartering. Why do we know she's not bartering? First is, notice the order of her prayer, God's answer to her prayer, and her emotions. So first, she prays. And then what? Before God answers her prayer, in verse 18, it says, Then she went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And it's after that that God answers her prayer and she conceives and gives birth to Samuel. And so if the order had gone prayer, this is what a commentator named Richard Phillips pointed out. If the order goes prayer, God answers, then Hannah's happy. Okay, then we know she's bartering. Okay, then, we, then we know she's just using God as a means to an end. But instead it goes prayer, before she receives an answer, then she's no longer sad. And then God answers. So essentially what Hannah's prayer is, God, I really want this. I really want a son. Will you please give me a son? Yet if you don't give me a son, I still know that I'm loved by you. I still know that you're committed to me. I I know that you love me more than I love myself. And I'm trusting that you are a good father that will give me everything I need. It's an amazing prayer. And the second reason why we know that she's not bartering is because what she says in her initial prayer. So when she says, God, if you give me a son, I'll commit him to the Lord and no razor shall touch his head. So she's referring there to the rights of uh, the Nazarites, which are described in Numbers chapter 6. And so what would happen is, um, so it was the tribe of the house of Levi, that they were the priests, right? They would minister full time. But if you weren't a Levite, uh, you could still take on essentially priestly duties uh, you become what's called a, a Nazarite, and you would do, there were certain identity markers, so you would do things like you'd abstain from alcohol, and another thing you would do is you wouldn't shave your head. So Samson, if you're all, we'll see him uh, later on in, in Samuel, so Samson was, was a Nazarite as well. And so what, what Hannah is saying is, God, if you give me a son, then I'm going to commit him as a Nazarite, and he'll serve you in your house forever. And this is incredible because Hannah's what she's saying is, even if I have a child, one, she's going to forfeit you know, just the emotional delight of having Samuel, you know, grow. And she's, she's with him, and he's with her, because she's not going to be with him. And then, and then number two, even if she continues to go into the marketplace and all those other women are there with their children, you know, she's going to see other women with their kids, and she's not going to have her kid. So the essence of her prayer is, Lord, I really want a son, but I don't want him for my sake. I want him for your sake. And that's the key. The the reason why Hannah is able to go from being shattered and despondent to joy and freedom is because she realizes she's not the point. And it's the same thing for you and me. As soon as you realize that you are not the point, but that God is the point, 
his name, his renown, that's where you're going to find freedom, just like Hannah did. And so here's the, the main application for today, is look at the longings of your soul. I hope you know what they are, but, but look at the longings in your heart. Just be honest. Okay, what is it that you want in your career? If you are single, do you want to be married or do you want to stay single? If you're married, do you want your marriage to be different? Do you want to have children? Okay, just do, do you want to live somewhere? If so, why? Okay, just look at the, the longings of your heart. Like when you picture your perfect future, what does it look like? And then ask yourself, are these longings that I have, like good longings, okay, a, a career, family, those are good things. But ask yourself, are these longings and hopes that I have, do I want them for my sake or do I want them for God's sake? It's a hard question. So like if you have career aspirations, do you want it just for you or because you believe that by achieving what you want to achieve, you're going to be able to elevate God's name more? Okay, if you want to be married, do you want to be married just so that you can have the emotional happiness of having a spouse? Or do you want to become married so that you can commit to life for helping somebody else grow and love Jesus, grow and love Jesus more than they did than when they married you? If you don't want to be married, if you want to stay single, or say you're married and you don't want children, just be honest, like, do you want to stay single or do you not want children because that is going to allow you, you know, it's going to give you more freedom and time to serve the Lord and serve others in certain ways? Or do you want to stay single or do you not want to have kids because you're, able, you're going to be able to keep your independence more and have more freedom? Okay, and so do what, this was so freeing for me this week, just do it handed in, go before God and say, God, this is what I want. Like, be honest about your hopes. Maybe it's a certain family situation you want fixed. God, this is what I want. Please give it to me. But if giving it to me is going to make me more self-centered, more independent, more distant from you, then don't give it to me. And, and if you don't give it to me, remember that I'm your child, that you love me, that you're committed to me. And if you give it to me, let me use it for your sake and not for my sake. So few Christians do this. So few. <laughs> and if you do this, it will, it will change everything, I promise. And maybe a question you're asking yourself is, I, I hope you're asking this. I hope you're being honest with yourself enough to say, I don't know that I can do, like, I really don't know that I can say I want A, B, C for God's sake and not for my sake. This is a place where you can be honest about that. Okay, that's great. Hannah said, okay, I really want a son, but I want to give him to the Lord. Don't keep him for me. But, you know, Hannah, she's one of the heroes of Scripture. I can't do what Hannah did. And yes, you can. Look, look again at what Hannah did. Hannah was able to submit her desires and ambitions to God. How? Well, look at her prayer again. She knew the character of God. When she starts off saying, Lord of hosts, another way to translate like that is Lord Almighty, so she knows that God is powerful. Later on, she names Samuel uh, after God's name, the God who hears. So she knows that God is also a God who hears. And Hannah surely knew the story about God liberating the Israelites from, from Egypt. So she also knew that not only is God powerful, not only does God hear, but God also cares about the deepest aches of your heart. And he'll make you whole. 
And that's why she was able to go to pray and submit her longings to God. And the amazing thing is, while, while Hannah knew the character of God, that's why she prayed what she did, you know the character of God too, but you have so much of a clearer window into God's character than Hannah did. Why? See, what's this story about? The story is about a woman who's shattered and broken, and she cries out to God for a son, and he gives her a son. But the gospel story, the story of how God saved you, is he gave you a son, and he enabled him, he allowed him to be shattered and broken so that you can have hope and new life. Guys, I just had a son. <laughs> He's changed my world. And the thought of giving him up <laughs> for anybody, for anybody I love, is unthinkable. And God loves his eternal son, Jesus Christ, so much more deeply and more infinitely than I love my son, Titus. And yet he gave him up to suffer the horror of torture in hell itself so that you who are a sinner can be adopted into God's family. It's this that's at the heart of life with God. It's this that's at the heart of the Christian life. Because at the heart of the Christian life is, God, I need to do all these things for you, or even, God, I need to like, work really hard to submit all these ambitions to you. The, the heart of the Christian life is gazing again and again at what we heard, what we heard in, what we know in Romans 8. Hey, he who did not spare his own son, how much more with him will he not also graciously give us all things? And so the, the Christian life and the heart of life with God is it's getting your eyes off of your desires and getting your eyes on Jesus Christ, eyes on his incarnation for you, eyes on his life for you, eyes on his crucifixion for you, eyes on his resurrection for you, eyes on his promise to you to persevere you to glory. That's his promise. That's his goal. And the more it's eyes on Jesus... The more you don't make yourself the point, you make him the point, and that's where you find freedom. Look, Hannah had no idea how God was going to use her faithfulness, right, by giving her deepest hope to him. But through Samuel came David. Through David came Jesus. <laughs> through Jesus, you and I are here today. God took Hannah's faithfulness and her suffering, and he turned it into gold, even though she couldn't see it. And same with you. When you commit your longings and ambitions to God and say, do this for your sake, not for my sake, he'll turn your longings into gold. He'll turn you into gold. Because that's who he is. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the model we have in Hannah, Lord. Um, help us to imitate her. Uh, to still come into your house when we feel broken and shattered and with the deepest longings of our heart to come before you and cry out to you, uh, to be real and authentic with you, saying, here's what I want. Um, will you please give it to me, uh, but not for my sake, for your sake. Lord, make us a church that does that and through us make us a city that does that. And it's in the name of Jesus, our risen and most high King, we pray. Amen.